You know when you've got a message in your heart and you're just ready to get up there and I, I missed my cue. That's all right. This is a house of grace. Amen? Amen. That's right. And so we're not perfect. We know it. But it doesn't matter because you know who is perfect? Jesus, our God. And he makes us perfect through his wonderful sacrifice and his love over us. And uh, that's actually a really good, although not one that I meant, intro for what we're talking about today. Because you see, I hear a lot uh, in the wider Christian church that there's lots of different interpretations of what Jesus said at the cross. Jesus got up at the cross and he said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Have you heard that before? And, and some people have said before, and I've, I've heard this being preached, that this is a moment of separation in the Trinity. Albeit a moment, but it was a moment of separation in the Trinity. Now, in my um, Good Friday message last year, I touched on this very briefly because I've got to be honest with you, I, I don't believe that. I don't, I don't see that. In scripture, I don't see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit actually being separated, being split. If you remember last Sunday, we had this graphic, we had this image of Christ at the cross, and that Christ had to go to the cross as a servant, not only as a servant to his people, but as a servant of God. And in his going up to the cross, the same thorns that covered Adam in sin were covering him. Now, this is what I think they're alluding to. They're alluding to that fact that God is holy. And as God is holy, he cannot stand sin. And in that moment, what happened is that he took all of that and he put that all on Jesus. And in doing so, there was a moment in which God himself was covered in that, taking that sacrifice. And that is a very human way of trying to rationalize what that might mean. I don't know about you friends, but I love these moments of scripture that confound and puzzle me. For two reasons. The first is they make me want to dive in deeper. They make me want to go in there and say, why is it that that happened? The second reason is because I love the fact that there is mystery. There is mystery there in the word. I mean, if we were meant to know everything now, then what are we going to learn when we're in glory? Am I right? And so it's so important for us to understand that we can live within that tension and we can understand that. So what I wanted to do today is I wanted to come away from that narrative slightly, but I wanted to unpack what is actually happening there in Psalm 22 for you and me to understand and for those listening online. And the reason for this is because we are thinking about the cross, aren't we? We are at Easter time, we are at Lent, and we are thinking about the cross and part of this thinking about the cross is how can we share this confidently with those around us whom we love in a way that they will understand. Especially when there are so many conflicting messages outside of the church. Why are we giving conflicting messages in the church as well? Am I right? So I think it's so important that we understand what is the heart of the psalmist. And how can that help us? in our understanding of who Christ is and how he speaks to us. So I invite you to bow your heads with me as we gather around his word at this time. Father, I thank you for your Holy Spirit, for your love. And I ask you, Lord Jesus, to be with us as we open your word and hear your voice. Speak to us, I pray in your son's name. 
Amen. The psalm begins with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, I find no rest. These are the words of the psalmist, a human. He is living in a time when God seems distant and far. Not because of God's own choosing, but because of sin. I need you to understand this, people of God. You see, at this time, they had the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was where you and I would go to connect with God. God didn't come to us. You and I would have to go there. Now, the Hebrew word for the tabernacle is where we get this wonderful word that we hear a lot in other churches, Shekinah. Have you heard this word before, Shekinah? Shekinah, is, is, it describes kind of like the Old Testament understanding of who the Holy Spirit was. Well, when you add the, what we call the um, abstract participle to the word Shekinah, what this means is that it goes from something that was solid, tangible, to something that is abstract, a concept beyond. You add the ma, mishnakah, it becomes Tabernacle. Tabernacle. Why? Because the tabernacle was the literal presence of God. You see, when the, the psalmist here is saying, why are you so far away from me? It's because he's over there. It's because he's in the tent, in the parking lot. And that's how far away he is. Do you hear me, people of God? He's saying that I have to go to you. But my sin... My sin holds me back from being able to do that, from coming to that place. My own iniquity. And so I cry out to you, Lord God, but I don't hear you respond. I don't hear you because it's my fault. Because of what I've done. Is it any wonder Jesus quoted this from the cross? Because you can imagine generations of sin being there on Christ. And he has always been in the presence of God. And in that moment, he's resonating with what the psalmist said. The psalmist desire to go, to be in the presence of God, to be close to him. But in that moment, Christ is suffering. Suffering, why? For you, for me, so that we can come to that presence of God. Redeemed, sanctified, restored as children of the living God. Isn't that amazing? That's why he says this. I've shared with you before, a dear friend of mine, minister at Ballina United Church, he was testifying to his cousin, a proud Jewish man, and he was telling him about this, and his cousin said to him, do you remember? He said, Pablo, you might be a great Christian, but you're a really bad Jew. Because if you were a good Jew, you would remember that this is how we quote Psalms. We just say the first phrase of the top. And then anybody who is listening, who can understand, will know the rest of it. Do you know the rest of Psalm 22? Would you like to? All right. <laughs> because this is what Jesus was saying. This is what Jesus was getting to. In Psalm 22, we have this image of how Christ actually goes through this anguish and pain. Psalm 22, verses 12 to 13. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of passion, encircle me, roaring lions that tear their prey, open their mouths wide against me. Mark tells us 
that again and again the soldiers struck him on the head with staff and spit on him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. You see, the bulls of Bashan were the strong men of this region in the north. Now, in the time of the psalmist, there was a region where they had giants. Traditionally, they had giants, big, tall guys. Now, me and my Brazilian brothers and sisters, we might relate to this because we come over here and we meet Phil. Phil, can I get you to stand, brother? I'm sorry, I'm putting you on the spot here. Giants. <laughs> You're a giant in the faith to me, brother. <laughs> Thanks, mate. But they had these giants. They had these gigantic men who lived up in those hills of Bashan. And they were afraid of them. And they would say to them, these, these are like bulls. They come and they're ferocious and they're angry. Bashan would come to be known as the Decapolis. A region in northern Israel that was given over to the Gentiles. And where Paul had a lot of his early ministry because there was so much idol worship. You know that passage where Jesus casts out the demons and the demons go down the cliff? That's where that took place. So you can see here these connections of this idea that these were strong Gentile men from a foreign land who were going to come and they were going to mistreat him. What else do we find? Psalm, 12, uh, Psalm 22 verse 12. My mouth is dried, he says. It's like a potsherd. And my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. As he was on the cross, he was thirsty. So they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. And even though he was thirsty, when he tasted it, he couldn't swallow. He couldn't take it in. You see, once again, we have this connection, this allusion to the things that were happening there in the psalm and the experiences that Christ had. And I'm picking the different Gospels because I want you to understand that these things are there within the, the, the different Gospels. It's not that Mark was suddenly thinking, oh yeah, I'm going to quote from Psalm 22 or Matthew was going to relate to you from Psalm 22. No, these were the things that he experienced. And actually, it's only Mark who alludes to it with the words, Eli, Eli, Lama, Sabachthani. Verses 16 and 18, Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. They divide my clothes among them. They cast lots for my garments. Matthew very briefly says, and they crucified him, dividing up his clothes. They cast lots. To lots to see what each would get. John tells us that Jesus' robe was lovingly made out of a single garment that was woven together. That is truly a labor of love. If ever you've seen a woman working away, or a man, someone working away at a, at a loom to create such a garment, it's, it's a big deal. So the soldiers didn't want to rip it. They didn't want to cut the garment. They wanted to have it whole. And so they gambled for it at the foot of the cross. To know that the psalmist wrote this a thousand years before the event moves me. When I first learned this, it shook me to, to my core because it made me come to a realization and an understanding that God's narrative had to be Fulfilled. It wasn't like Jesus could cheat. It wasn't like he could take the easy, easy way out. 
he had to go through each of these steps. John 14. He had to go through each of these steps because he had to fulfill the reality of what God desired. He says in John 14 verses 10 and 11, Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words I say to you do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing His work. Believe me when I say I am in the Father and the Father is in me. See, He's saying this because He's explaining that in this moment, He is fulfilling God's now, how countercultural, how counterintuitive, because the Jewish people were expecting that he would be a king, that he would run into Jerusalem with a sword drawn on a white stallion, and that the way how he would redeem Israel was not by taking their sins to a cross, but instead by routing their enemies and elevating them to a place of prestige and national pride. Does this sound familiar? Because you know what? Humans are still looking for this, aren't we? We're still craving this kind of Messiah, this kind of hero. But Jesus instead went forward in brokenness and lowliness. I was moved as I was reading through all of this because I saw that as Jesus falls down carrying his cross, he says to the women who are weeping and crying for him, do not weep for me, but weep for your children. And I wonder how many women we should be saying that to today. Because he knew where he was going. He knew that on that third day he would be in glory. He knew that he was going to then come back and stand with, with his disciples and teach them and educate them until he went into his ascension. He knew. First Timothy, Paul is saying, for there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. He wants us to understand that all that had happened beforehand, all that had been drawn in that narrative and understanding from Abraham, from Adam, through the prophets, through the kings, right into John the Baptist, that the time had come. That story had to end, friends. And a new story had to begin. And I want to share with you that you are part of that story. We are part of that story. That story is not finished yet. Christ is yet to come again. And as he does, what have we got to show for it? Let us embrace the invitation to be part of that next story, of that next narrative. There was a movement briefly in a lot of evangelical churches here and in overseas. And uh, whatever you think of the movement is fine. You know, they, they did some great things. They did some not so great things. But they called themselves Acts 29. And I love that. I love that. Do you know why? Because Acts has 28 chapters. The 29th chapter is who? It's us. 
The church of Jesus Christ is ongoing. The church of Jesus Christ is here. It is now. Christ went to fulfill that first narrative, that first promise. And that narrative continues. And we are invited to be a part of that. So how does the psalm end? How did the hearers standing there at the foot of the cross, what, what would they have interpreted as this story concludes? Jesus gave his life not long after that. He said the words, it is finished. But perhaps in their ears, these words would have been ringing. Because the psalmist says towards the end of the psalm, verses 23, 24, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Prosperity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord and they will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. Who's he talking about? He's talking about us. He's talking about how Jesus will fulfill something that at that time, that small nation in the Middle East could never fully comprehend and fully understand. Friends, I've shared with you before that as a Latino, when I read that his mission would go to the ends of the earth, you know what's the place I think of? Australia. <laughs> because Brazil, Argentina, we're on the other side of the planet. We're literally on the other side of the planet. And so the idea, the notion that here we are and we are worshiping, we are praising the Lord. It's a fulfillment. It's a fulfillment of that which Christ said when he said that you would go and you would preach to all the nations. And you will baptize in the name of the Son and the Father and the Holy Spirit until the ends of the what? Of the earth. And maybe one day, who knows? We'll send missionaries from here back there as well. But I love the fact that this verse, this chapter, sorry, ends. This psalm ends with these words. And the knowledge and the understanding that as Christ was quoting this from the cross, he was saying, hey, I may be dying here, but this isn't, this isn't the flash in the pan. This isn't the end of the story. This isn't the end of the narrative. There is another chapter to come. And we are it. Isn't that amazing? Doesn't that fill you with hope? So friends, this Easter, we may find ourselves in family barbecues, Easter morning teas at work. Whatever we find ourselves in any of these spaces, there is an opportunity for us to share and show that love. I'll never forget when I was working an office job, Brisbane City, 20 something years ago. I know. <laughs> and at Easter time, we were having our Easter morning tea and somebody comes along and says, hey, Esteban, you're a Christian, you know, tell us what this is all about. 
And I was like, yeah, yeah, wonderful, wonderful. The next person chimed in and said, actually, he's a pastor. And okay, now the pressure is on. But it was so wonderful to take five minutes and to just say, you know what this is actually about. We believe that Christ went willingly and gave of his life for you and me. And that's what we celebrated this time. That moment was a fulfillment of this prophecy. The moment when you share your love, whether it is through the ministry of the op shop, whether it is by loving your family or your friends, whether it is by just stepping out in faith and confidence and knowing that Christ is going before you and you can say these words of hope, love and truth, you are fulfilling this passage. So I invite you to live this next chapter of the narrative. And remember that in that moment, it was a moment where I believe the Trinity was whole. But more importantly, it was an invitation for us to come in and join Christ. For us to be part of that family. And we will be expanding on that a little bit more in our Easter message. For now, I invite you to bow your heads with me as we conclude our time together. Father, I thank you for your love. I thank you for Jesus. I thank you that we can open your word freely and that we can be part of this next part of the narrative, the story of Jesus Christ. Bless us on this beautiful day and equip us, Father God, so that as we go from this place this morning, we are able to live out that next chapter. Thank you. Thank you for your love. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, I invite you to stand as you are able. We're going to sing one more time. We're going to sing a song that is really dear to my heart. It's an invitation. Maybe you haven't heard this song before. Maybe you're not aware of what this invitation means. If not, I invite you to just listen. Just listen to the words and let the Holy Spirit speak to you through it. Because God is a God of the brokenhearted. Amen. And we need to be prepared to come no matter how we find ourselves. Like I said before, this is not a church of perfection.